Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Okay, we are live. Uh, I am here with our special guest, Ed Kugler on the team house. I'm Jack Murphy. I just recently read Ed's book, Dead Center. Uh, it is about his time, his two years as a Marine scout sniper in Vietnam, 1966 and 67, up on the uh, demilitarized zone. And um, there's a, a lot to unpack on this book. I finished reading it this week. I was really impressed with uh, Ed's book, his combat experiences, and really just the, the rawness of, uh, of his memoir that is really written as he experienced it. It's not a, a glamorized or glorified account of war by any stretch of the imagination. It kind of tells it is and how he lived it as a young man. Um, so Ed, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Appreciate it. Um, could you start by uh, just telling us a little bit about like where you grew up, how you came into the Marine Corps, um, where you came out of? Yeah, I grew up in a little town in Ohio. Uh, it's called Lock 17. It was the 17th lock, they say, on the old Erie Canal. And uh, we had about 75 people there. And uh, But I was surrounded in that little town by veterans uh, from World War II, you know, so I grew up with a lot of people that, you know, impressed me and Im impacted me, and uh, I actually, there's no kidding, I actually did a book report in the fifth grade called The Story of the U.S. Marines, and uh, from that time forward, I wanted to be a Marine, <laughs> so two weeks after high school graduation, I was in Paris Island. And that was quite a shock. Yeah, I, I thought that whole part of the, the book was really interesting, Ed, and you were talking about how you sort of went to Vietnam chasing the Marines that you read about in fifth grade. I did. I actually did. I, I got uh, my first combat was down in Santa Domingo in April 1965. Uh, 
they had a little uprising there and and uh, we were on a Caribbean cruise headed to Panama for uh, jungle training. And so we did a landing there and went in the city. And so I got wounded there along with uh, 36 other Marines. We had four killed in about, it all happened in about four hours. It was, it was over after that, primarily. The, and when I was laying on the hospital ship, I thought maybe I made a mistake, you know, you, you can get hurt doing this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you know, it, it, I, that was a very interesting part of the book for me because the uprising in the Dominican Republic at the time is something that you sort of read about in passing in other books or articles. Uh, but reading, you, you were the first firsthand account that I had ever read of what happened that day. And like, you were really in the shit. Like you came in there and they dropped ramp and like there, you were under heavy machine gun fire in the middle of the capital city. I, like there, there was some serious stuff that you were in. Yeah, it was real intense. Like I said, for, you know, probably the most intense for a couple of hours, you know. And uh, yeah, I mean, they put us in, well, we got pinned down crossing a, into old Santa Domingo and then uh, they brought Amtrak's in and picked us up and turned around and went right, dropped the gates right in front of that 30 cal on the roof. And uh, I followed uh, one of my fire team leaders. I was a grunt, grunt at the time. And I followed him through a plate glass window. Uh, he, he put his rifle out, crashed, crashed through because we had to get out of the street. You know, And there was a guy and his wife and, uh, two little kids in there and uh we kind of dusted ourselves off and left you know i mean it was it was it, you know first time it was just chaos you know it was, it, it's always chaos but you learn to live with it but this was a shock you know because yeah. there was live bullets flying at you. But how come that experience didn't deter you and you continued on? I mean, you uh, you actually volunteered for Vietnam. I did. I, uh, I came home from Santa Domingo and, and uh, was in the hospital short time. And, and uh, I don't know, the guys from Vietnam started returning to Lejeune, which didn't really supply people for Vietnam. You know, Lejeune was kind of for Europe, and, uh, and they started coming home talking about, you know, helicopter or uh, jet setting fields on fire and, you know, just all the glory of war, you know, that's not real, but you hear it, and uh, yeah. uh, something in me just said, I got to go, and so uh, I volunteered and was, uh, was gone uh, pretty quick after that took about six weeks. I was on the West Coast and went through jungle training in the desert. You know, they didn't have a jungle in California. And uh, it was real fast. And uh, and then I went over on a ship and then we went into Da Nang and then we were supposed to uh, be replacements. Our ship was 900 Marines and they were supposed to be replacements for people rotating home or killed or wounded, you know. And uh, that's when uh, uh, my, the staff sergeant, gunny sergeant that was starting the scout snipers, 
that's when they came around uh, that morning looking for uh, volunteers. And then how did you, as, as a grunt, you know, arriving, you know, fresh in Vietnam, how did you find your way into scout snipers? Because it was one of those things where, um, it, it was one of those specialty positions that the military, both Army, Marines, I think, you know, that we, we did away with after every single war. Yeah, and they, the Marines had done that as well. And they were just, uh, when I arrived, they were just starting to start to scout snipers up again. And so I was, um, these uh, Gunny and a staff sergeant um, came around to, to each, we, you know, we were organized in platoons, uh, the 900 of us, you know, we were laid out on the beach to, to be, get our name called to go which grunt outfit we were going to. And to each group, these guys came around making a pitch that they were starting a scout sniper school. And, uh, and you had to have already been an expert on the rifle range. You had, you know, you had to already be qualified as an expert, which I was. And then uh, you had to pass an interview with these two. And so uh, I, I honest to God made a calculated decision that I didn't know what that was exactly, but I knew it was probably better than charging machine guns. Because, because that, that's what we did in San Domingo. And I thought, I don't know what this is, but give me a little more control. And uh, that was, my, I, honest to God, that was my motivation. And, uh, and so uh, there was... There, that, that may have been the difference between you being already a combat veteran and a lot of the other guys standing in the formation that day is kind of like you had already charged into machine gun fire, kind of like, eh, yeah, I don't know, yes. I don't know about all that. <laughs> yes. And, and out of all those Marines, there was only, um, there was, uh, about two dozen volunteers is all. And then they chose 11 of us. And, uh, and one of the reasons I know that, because I'm still friends with the staff sergeant again, he's retired Marine now, but, but uh, one of the reasons I was chosen was that I had combat experience. So uh, we, uh, that afternoon, we were put on a helicopter and flown up to Fubai, which is just outside away. And uh, that's where the 4th Marines were. And so it was a regiment, at that point, the sniper platoon was regimental level, uh, reported under the colonel. And uh, the design was that we would be divvied out to the three battalions of fourth Marines. The way it worked out, we'd be divvied out to whoever needed us, you know. So we ended up sometimes with South Vietnamese, sometimes. I never worked with the US Army. I only worked, but I worked with a lot of different Marine units, you know. But our training, we got there and uh, our training was really simple. We were the first group ever trained in a combat zone, snipers. And so we had a range set up in a little draw outside of, uh, you could see our base at Fubai, but we'd go out there and, uh, and all our targets were, was they had engineers go out and put tent stakes, those metal tent stakes in, and they put a 105 canister shell, canister of a artillery shell on each stake. At, and it started at 300 and went 
400, 500, all the way out to 1,000. And the way we worked, we'd go out at 0600 every morning and we'd lay there with a partner and I'd shoot for 30 minutes, he'd shoot for 30 minutes, then he'd shoot, then I'd shoot it. We did that until uh, 1600 every day for a month. And uh, that was that was sniper school. <laughs> and it was only the second course run in Vietnam, right? Yes, yeah. There was one at Chulai before us, which is south of Da Nang, and then we were the second. And um, and we we were supposed to have 30, I think it was 30 or 32 snipers in the platoon, but we honestly never had more than 18 or 19 the whole two years I was there. You know. And uh, you, go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to ask um, if you could talk a little bit about the the weapons platforms that you had at that time, because it, it was quite early on in the in the program. Yeah, we the choice of rifles at that time was either a Winchester Model 70-30-06, and it had a four-inch extended barrel on it, and it had um, a um, floating barrel. It had a and it had a real heavy stock, and they called it a bull barrel. It was real heavy, and uh, it weighed about it weighed about seventeen or eighteen pounds. It was not light. Wow! Yeah. And uh, the other rifle was an M1. That was it. That was our two choices. And then scopes, uh, you, you had a choice of a uh, nine power Unertle. Uh, it's a real long, narrow scope. And a, it just said Marine on it. It was a three by nine variable. And it just said Marine. I don't know who made that. But <laughs> I took the three by, I took the Model 70 and, uh, and the, uh, the three by nine and my partner took a model 70 when we first started and a Unertle. Uh, a lot of guys liked the Unertle. I liked the three by nine myself, but, and that was, that was the platform. I mean, that's all there was, you know, the choices. Now the ammo was all match ammunition, you know, sent in from the States, you know, uh, but beyond that, the, the only other training we got, it was kind of funny. They sent us to uh, landmine warfare and demolition school for four hours. <laughs> and, uh, and, they, and they authorized us to uh, go out and take booby traps, to, you know, part whatnot. And so, and, and we had, uh, I think it was a day, it wasn't more than that, a few hours of forward observer school. And we were permitted, I got pretty good at it. We were permitted to call in, you know, artillery, mainly artillery, but I, I called in the New Jersey battleship one time, uh, airstrikes, you know, it was, it was the wild west, quite frankly, <laughs> it was, it was the wild west. And this was, you know, and I, 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 I'd like to hear your, your take on it, of course, but I mean, 1966 was, this is sort of the period where like big army and Marine Corps are starting to get in there, but it's not super built up yet. No, it was building up, you know, and, and in early, I want to say it was, well, in the summer of 66 was the, in June, I think, late June or early July was uh, I know that I don't know the Army's thing down below, but 
in the Marines, the first battle with the North Vietnamese happened in June, or it was either, it was Operation Hastings, which was a meat grinder that I've been surprised no one ever wrote about, you know, it, uh, uh, they, uh, my, one of my drill instructors, actually, I saw him in Vietnam after Operation Hastings, and uh, he ended up getting the Medal of Honor in Operation Hastings. Uh, wow. And, uh, and I, I saw, this is kind of a funny aside, but I saw him, uh, I was with force reconnaissance in the mountains for Operation Hastings. So I saw it more as an air thing than I did. You know, I wasn't in that battle, but what had happened was they had, uh, I had actually talked to Sergeant McGinty, is his name, John McGinty. And um, I talked to him years later, but, uh, they they had went in recon had went in to the lz and scoped it out and they said four choppers could land at a time and uh between the time they scoped it out and the time the battle went in the marine corps had shifted from the old uh 34 you know the gas job with the high engine and everything in the in the front to the twin blade uh sea night which is like a chinook and uh they were bigger and so when the four chinooks or you know the sea knights went into the lz they all hit the blades and they went down in the lz and so they were they were all cut off you know and that's with the battle that uh, mcginty won the medal of honor as did his lieutenant colonel because he was there with him Majuleski. and um they were pinned there for three days and uh, uh and so in my book now this is years later you know in my book i mentioned that after that battle we were all back at dong ha and here comes mcginty was walking along you know and i described him in the book as ashen face you know because mm -hmm. he was it was a hideous experience you know and so i was traveling i used to travel a lot for business and I was traveling, I was watching History Channel one night, and they they were featuring different Medal of Honor winners. So here's John McGinty, you know, talking about that. So I called the Medal of Honor Society and said, is there a way I can send my book to him? And they said, yeah, send it here. Well, you know. So fast forward about three months, I forgot all about it, and I'm home one Friday, and the phone rings at like 8 o'clock in the morning. And I answer it, and I hear this, just like boot camp, I hear this. <laughs> Googler, and I said, "Yeah," and he says, "McGinty here," and I, I said, "For real?" and he goes, "For effing real." <laughs> <laughs> and so, so we had a really fun conversation. But the first thing he said to me is, "What the f is this ashen face BS?" <laughs> you know? And uh, so we got a laugh about it. But uh, it, it was. It was uh, an adventure, to say the least. That's unreal, and uh, it, it's uh, well. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but I mean, it, it was cool to hear about how uh, so many of you guys stayed in touch after the war. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the guys after Vietnam, they were just kind of like, there's no closure for anything. They were just out there on their own, you know. Uh, and it sounded like you guys stayed pretty tight after the war. We did. We still. Uh get together those of us that are left you know still uh, get together 
uh, once a year, you know, at least, and and talk on the phone and stay in touch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We had one uh, one of our guys uh, committed suicide uh, yeah. probably two years after he came home, you know, and uh, and he he only lived a short distance from me, and so you know I was able to be there, but uh, you know he just had some demons that he was trying to kill with alcohol and drugs and just never did. And, uh, Ed, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us about your first patrol, um, which I thought was very interesting that you, you know, early on in your sniper career, you were supporting force recon and going out with them. Yeah, that, that was, uh, when we, you know, quote, graduated sniper school, you know, there wasn't anything formal or anything, but we were now officially <laughs> uh, put up for grabs, you know, the uh, unit could, uh, and our gunny and Safsar, they would try and sell us, you know, to places. And because uh, it was all new, you know, and they didn't, there wasn't really doctrine, you know, and uh, so my partner and I, um, he came from the grunts and he had actually been in uh, Operation Hastings, uh, not a Hastings, he was one before that, but he had been already been. So I picked him as a partner because he was really just, I, I, the thousand yard stare thing, you know, is real, but he was kind of, uh, you know, they say a guy's a functioning alcoholic, you know, mm -hmm. well, Hutch was kind of a functioning thousand yards there. <laughs> he just didn't care. Autonomously. Yeah. Uh, so we held our hand up when they said they wanted two force recon snipers. Um, and all I knew about force recon at the time was, you know, they're kind of our badasses, you know, that, that's about all I knew. And uh, so we went over to sign up with them and stuff, and they, uh, they're very professional people, you know, very professional. And their patrols were intricately planned. And even back then, they had aerial photographs of the LZ we would go into, and you run to this tree, you run, you know. And so, uh, we go out that day and uh, we got inserted about 1600 hours probably and the plan was you always for about an hour you you book it you know from the lz and when we went in when i read about some of the things going on in iraq and afghanistan stuff i'm appalled because when we were inserted as force recon we had a spotter plane with us we had our insertion chopper, we had two gunships, and we had two phantoms, you know, that that could drop bombs and, you know, everything. So they were on station every time we were inserted, you know. And so if you got in trouble, it was right above you. So uh, we get out of the chopper and start booking it, and, and they assigned us, there was five recon, two of us, and they always sign off in pairs or threes if you get hit real bad you split up and come back together and so i was uh, assigned at the back end with tail and charlie and uh, so i was next to him he was last now i'm packing a 30 out six five round you know bolt action 
and nothing else because the Marine Corps wouldn't get, we asked for 45s, you know, to carry with our sniper rifles and that wasn't in the manual, you know, so we couldn't, we, we never got them, you know. And uh, at any rate, we took off for, uh, and we were on the ground probably five minutes along this stream, just like we were told. And pretty soon a strafing run goes right over our head and these 20 millimeter shells are falling on us, you know. Now he was shooting in front of us, but they, uh, they had spotted a goop patrol out in front of us. And so uh, we all hit the deck, you know, when that happened. And, and honestly, I'm thinking, well, you know, we've been exposed, you know, they're going to pull us out, you know. And the, the point man on recon simply pulled out a machete and made a left turn straight up this mountain <laughs> and hacked his way up this mountain. And we, I was dying because it was my first patrol, you know, and the heat and my legs. And uh, we went to the top of this thing and it, and it leveled out. And uh, we took our first break and it was literally an hour and uh, just took our break and had sentries out there and everything. And uh, and we got hit from behind. They had been following us the whole time. And uh, I was uh, pumping that uh, bang, bang, you know, with my 30 odd six. And uh, two recon guys got hit pretty bad. Uh, it happened real fast and it was over real fast. And, uh, and I took a round through my pack and ruined some sea rats, but other than that. Uh, and so that was that was the first uh patrol that we we went on and then that that night because that was very was getting dark and we were in the you know deep in the jungle and the canopy and everything so uh what they did was uh we crawled into this was a recon kind of thing we crawled inside this thicket and uh, laid shoulder to shoulder opposites you know one facing one way, one the other. And every other person was to stay up all night, uh, you know, guarding because we couldn't get our wounded out. And uh, and so uh, I'll never forget that I ended up next to my partner, Hutch, you know, which I said, he was he was a wonderful guy in combat. And, uh, and so I stayed up, you know, in my hour and, and I hit him, you know, next to me and said, okay, it's your turn. It's supposed to be our on our own. And uh... with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He says, okay, I got it. Or he whispered, you know, okay, I got it. And uh, so I, uh, he didn't get up. And so Hutch, <laughs> and he finally said to me, think about it, Coog. We crawled in this thicket. They'll wake us up coming in. Don't worry about it. I stayed up all friggin' night. 
<laughs> and he slept away. This was uh, Zulu in your book. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's who it was. And uh, and that's just how he was. It was, But he was there when it counted. You know, he was, he was a different guy, but he... Uh, he just died about a year ago, but uh, uh, but so then the next morning, you know, they came and they they uh, we had to winch these guys out, you know, because the canopy mm -hmm. was sixty feet or something, and and um, the rest of the patrol was somewhat un uneventful, you know. But what happened was when they winched these guys out, they took our sniper rifles with them and gave us their M14s, you know, which we felt better about, quite frankly, you know, but. And so when we got back, because you never talked out there, you had little pads and you wrote notes and showed people, you know, you did not talk. Because we were 30, 40 miles from friendlies, you know, and it would take about an hour for help to get to you. And so... Um, Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. When we got back, we, uh, the recon guys were happy with us. You know, they told us, Hey, you know, we trust you, you know, this and that. And so we said, uh, well, how about we make a deal? We'll go out with you the next time, but give us M14s, you know, or give us something and we'll leave our sniper rifles here. We just didn't tell our sergeants, you know, and, uh, and it was the best thing we ever did because those three months I, I worked with them for three months, uh, We'd have patrols and then you'd have a couple of days off and then go back out for eight to 10 days and a couple of days off and back out. And uh, just incredibly professional guys who I learned so much from that I applied when I got my own sniper patrols later. But a funny, another funny one, they had an art, you know, they had an armory that they had all the good fancy stuff of, at the time, you know. And so they took us down the armory about two hours before our next patrol and they said you can leave your sniper rifles here we'll take care of them and uh you got your pick you know so hutch and i picked thompson submachine guns you, you know the 45 caliber shark like thing. like world war ii thompson yeah yeah that's what they were and they had the big 30 round mag you know and oh the drum mag night. or uh, well, no not the drum they had the the stacked magazine no, it wasn't a drum it was this giant yeah, long yeah. Mag, you know this magazine well that sucker's heavy you know, yeah. and uh, well, then, you know, they always tried to carry enough ammo, you know, you wouldn't know, but but the theory was carry enough for an hour firefight, you know, because it takes an hour for help, you know. So they made us carry all these magazines of these friggin' this Thompson, you know. I'm not kidding you, I was in good shape. I jumped out of that chopper. The choppers never landed, you know, they'd get close, you know, and, and you'd jump three or four feet. I buckled my knees all that weight. <laughs> and so we only carried those one patrol. <laughs> then we said, give us the M14. <laughs> We're good, you know. And they got a kick out of that. I think they always had already been through that. But it was it was fun to have it one time get a picture, you know. As a uh, as a sniper in Vietnam, I mean I, I I'm interested to hear your perspective because 
you know, sniper engagements are not necessarily possible in the jungle. Um, so I, I was just curious, you know, how did this work out? What was the employment of snipers in Vietnam? How were you guys able to operate? Like you're talking about how you were happy to set aside the bolt gun and, and use an M14. Um, well, how, how did that pan out in the long run? Well, uh, in the early going, most of my first year, well, the first three months was with recon. And, you know, what we realized, you know, recon's out there to recon, you know, so they don't want a shot fired, you know, because then they know where they are. Mm -hmm. So that's why we negotiated this deal and, and had fun for three months. And then our compatriots back at the platoon, you know, were all getting kills, you know, and we weren't because we were recon. <laughs> and so we decided to go back. So the early deployment was... All you would do, it was it was not a good use, you know. Um, you had a you and a partner, and you would be assigned to an infantry unit for a operation, you know. And then you're just out there, and they would yell snipers up if they saw somebody, and you know you'd do your your deed, you know. The problem with infantry, as you would know, is they aren't quiet. You know, the, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're not, you know. Yeah, after, they, you know, you got, you guys, deployment, uh, like, like you guys as snipers, you were like, what, six-man patrols? The the previous guest we had on was a LERP, who also six-man patrols mostly. Once you yeah. get above that, the, the noise, you know, you talk about a platoon of yeah. infantry, 40, 50 guys, forget it. Yes, and so... Uh, we did that for several months, you know, and you, and you have limited success with that because uh, for us, it was probably a little safer because we were in numbers, you know, versus two of us or something. We ran a few two-man patrols, but they were pretty short outside of bases and stuff like that. And, um, but then we got this idea, why can't we do similar to recon, you know? And so we had a colonel at the time, and this was uh, my you know, I'd re-upped for six months. And uh, and so it was in uh, May of uh, 67, we proposed to the regimental commander, this colonel, that we run our own patrols, mm -hmm. just like recon and whatnot. And he he approved it, you know. So, uh, so we started with a four, well, no, a five-man team, sometimes four. And then it would range from four to six over that. And, and that's what in the book, our, our radio call sign was the rogues. And, um, and so today they probably wouldn't like, <laughs> like to have that. <laughs> but, uh, I uh, share some, another, some of the, the pictures that you were nice enough to share with me. I, I just want to put them up so people can see you guys. That's how we look. And so tell me about the rogues. Who, who were these guys? Well, we, there were different ones over my time there, you know, but because we, we, uh, we on it, we didn't have any, we had snipers killed, but the rogues, we had several wounded, but none killed. But um, I'm on the right in that picture. The guy next to me is, uh, we called him Red. He was a redhead, red beard, and all that. And, uh, Guy next to him was from Mulberry, Florida, a poor gas station place. Uh, the first time I called him, uh, 
after Vietnam and talked to his mother, I couldn't understand her. It was so deep south. I mean, I'm serious. <laughs> and then uh, the one on the left was with us uh, a shorter time, but he was he was one of the roads, and uh, he was from a little town in Pennsylvania. And uh, and then the guy taking the picture in that one was probably um, he just passed away last year. He we called him Boo for Water Boo. He was a big Iowa farmer and. Uh, but I tell you, we were all just middle America, you know, it was uh, uh, no special training. We had one guy that was my point man toward the end uh, who had had an MBA and was drafted. So he chose the Marines and they wouldn't even go to officer school. And he said no. And so he ended up uh, volunteering to be a sniper. And so was that a uh, debt cord? Well, no, that was. Uh, <laughs> Detcord is a member of Mensa, and uh, he's not in this picture, uh, but he spent a lot of time with us, and he was fascinated with explosives, and so we let him be our demo man, you know, and we'd make him walk a little far from us, because if he took a sniper round, he was going up, you know, he carried so much demolition and stuff, but, and, uh, and it's funny, you know, he's been talking now for 50 years about the coming revolution, and I think it might be here. <laughs> but uh, he's still alive. He's in Indianapolis, but uh, he has a couple of degrees. And and uh, last time I talked to him, he was driving a pizza, pizza truck to stay in shape. But uh, he's, he's smarter than you can imagine. Taught himself Vietnamese, actually. Right, right. He was your he translator. Was, he was my interpreter. Yeah, he was my he was my interpreter. Yeah, but uh, boy, you couldn't uh, couldn't trust him too much with those explosives. But he was fun to have around. Yeah, it was like uh, you know, definitely a motley crew uh, that you, oh, you recruited that you had in the yeah the rogues. I mean, very like interesting personalities to say the least. Yeah, now this this is the one on the left is the one that uh, they wanted to be a Marine officer. And uh, he was from Dubuque, Iowa. He now lives down in Asheville, North Carolina. But uh, uh, he was a tough young guy and a wonderful point man. And, and the one in the middle is the one in the book called Tomo. And okay. we really called him. The reason the, the names got screwed up was 48 hours before my manuscript was due, some lawyer from yeah. Random House calls me and said, do you have authorization from all these guys? You know, and I, knowing what I know now, I would have just lied and said I did. But, but uh, so I, they made me change the, even the nicknames, you know. Wow. And so, so really his name was, we called him Moto because when he arrived, he's 5'7", weighed 210. He, he's a bad motor scooter, you know. And, uh, he uh, he's in the middle. He but he died of brain cancer, I think, three years ago. Oh, I got sorry to hear that. Him, got to be with him at the end, but uh, and that's me on the right. But uh, uh, it it was a motley crew. It was uh, um, we we had a spell where you know we were authorized quote to uh, disarm booby traps. You know, so the scout part of our job was sometimes to walk point for grunts and stuff. And uh, so we, uh, you know, we'd go walk point and if we found a booby trap, you know, you know, the protocol, you're supposed to 
set it, yell fire in a hole, you know, all that crap, you know. And so we got sick of that. And so we would simply go, we'd take turns and we would simply go up with a frag grenade and lay it by the booby trap and run like hell, you know. And uh, it saved a lot of time. <laughs> and uh, the grunts really kept their distance, <laughs> quite frankly, from the <laughs> Yeah, you guys were pretty ballsy about some of those booby traps. And like you related in the book, some incidents where like guys would get the tripwire like hung up in their bootlaces and stuff. It was like, oh my God. Yeah, I I was uh, the one guy there from Florida that I mentioned. Uh, his his actual name was Hood, last name was Hood. And uh, that's what we called him. But he was he was a cat in the jungle. He, he was unbelievable point man. And he going down a slick morning uh just a little position we were trying to go down to get in position we always tried to position ourselves before daylight because you got most of your shots the first hour of daylight you know and uh and he slipped and you know you couldn't talk out there or anything you know and i was i always walked second he always walked first and and uh so I had to slide myself down and he whispers to me that I got a tripwire on my boot and, uh, and he had a tripwire on his boot <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and I was right above him. And of course he's below, it would have got us both. And there's only three guys behind me. And so we had to have them just kind of set up a small perimeter and we had to wait till daylight, you know, to get his boot off of there, you know, and I mean, it was about an hour, but, uh, and I tell you, he never flinched, you know, he, uh, he just, in fact, when I was getting his leg and, you know, lifting it up so I could pull it back off of the tripwire, he said, oh, that feels good. Whenever <laughs> I had a hold of his leg. <laughs> that, was, that was when we, in hindsight, I think we started being there a little too long because we just were sure we were invincible, you know. And I mean, for in a lot of ways, it seemed like you were like you guys were able to go out and rack up quite a few kills out in this area out by the, the demilitarized zone between North and South Vietnam. I mean, uh, I mean, you, you really saw a lot of action out there. We did. Ours was not, you know, ours was uh, I mean, we at times I was in a few of the set piece kind of battles, you know, with the grunt. Mm hmm. But most of ours was uh, small, you know, small unit fights, you know, and stuff. And uh, and so, uh, but we, I got to the point, the shot wasn't my thing. The thing was pulling off the patrol and pulling off, you know, like sneaking into this place that no one would dream I could get into, you know. And uh, and so that kind of became my, my thing, you know, I just, I just, could we really do this, you know? And uh, and these guys, it, it was a, it honestly was, our patrol was a democracy. I let them, we, we uh, argued about things and we, we either agreed or we didn't go, you know, if everybody didn't agree, we didn't do it. And, uh, and uh, almost every case they, they agreed, you know, one too many, you know, we, 
we had a situation in this valley. We there was a lot of infiltration prior to the Tet Offensive, and so we went. We lived out there for six months. Uh, we'd come into grunts and get supplies and stuff, but we had beards and long hair and kind of looked like the Taliban at times, you know. And uh, and so we just loved it because we were out of the. By then, by the second year into '67, the Marine Corps started getting petty again. You know, they got organized. They got you know started having rules and, you know, just nonsense stuff you know, for a combat zone. So we loved it because we could just stay out of that. You know, we were, we were on our own and the Colonel supported us because we got results, you know? And uh, so we had these gooks moving around about 1200 meters out and we couldn't reach it. You know, we could, we could pretty consistently hit a thousand, but I think they figured it out, you know, and so they changed their route a little bit. And so um, just pissed me off. And, and so I, I'd call artillery on them and stuff, you know, but you, you don't know what results you got. And, uh, and it was flat out there, which was not our turf. You know, we like to stay in the hills and shoot out in the flat line. And so uh, I convinced five, my five, five guys to uh, let's go out because I know they got bunkers, you know, we, we had aerial photographs and stuff. And they would be out at night, you know, the gooks would be out at night because they, they were mostly cadres who were there to supply the troops coming down from the north, you know. So there wasn't a lot of them out there, you know, at the time. And so I came up with this brainstorm to go out there and uh, get in the bunkers of theirs when they were gone and call artillery, you know, when they came back and uh, bet on the come that it wouldn't hit my bunker, you know? And, uh, and so I convinced, <laughs> I convinced these guys to go. And uh, fortunately, about a halfway out, Hood was walking point and uh, there was an ambush waiting for us and he foiled the ambush. So we had to exchange a little gunfire and ran like heck, you know, and got out of there and we never did it again, but, <laughs> but uh, they even agreed with me to do that. So, <laughs> yeah, that was probably one of the more like insane schemes that you would come up yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, do you want to talk about that uh, that one shot that you made at thirteen hundred meters out at the Arvin camp? Yeah, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that was. Uh, we got sent out uh, with the Arvins to Contien before. Uh, before the this was in 66 so it was before all the i mean it was dangerous out there but it got really ugly in the grunts that there's a real history and a book about it and everything uh so i was there with the arvins when it was a small camp and it was a french camp cement bunkers and stuff you know from the french days and um so the Arvin, there was one guy who spoke English out there, it was all, and uh, he was an Arvin lieutenant. And so he, uh, he wouldn't let us shoot, you know, because what we realized, I was out there for three weeks with him. And at night, you could actually watch troops infiltrating from the north because they had flashlights, okay? They, about every fifth one had a flashlight. And the Arvins had a deal with them that the North Vietnamese wouldn't attack Contien if they didn't attack them. Right, right. So we would see these streams going by at night, you know, and they wouldn't. And so it was kind of a bizarre 
place out there. Well, one day we see this guy and it was a demilitarized zone. Nobody's supposed to be there. And so he was by this hut. And the only reason I knew it was 1300 meters there's on the map, you know, there was this little hooch he was in and it was on the map. And it was the only one in that grid square. And it was 1300 meters. So I called the urban lieutenant over and gave him the binoculars and said, can I shoot? And he laughed and said, yes, you know, so, well, cool. So we laid on top of this bunker, it was a grass roof. And uh, my partner and made us a little stand with sandbags. And, and uh, so my first shot, the guy didn't even look up, you know, I mean, and now I got five shots, you know. And so my, my partner's spotting and, uh, he picked up the second shot, but it was probably 200 yards short. Guy still didn't look around. And uh, the third shot, I I could see it. It hit the dirt, you know, so it was just in front of him. The fourth shot was just behind him. And then he went in. And so we waited. <laughs> he disappeared for about an hour. And then he came back out. And so my fifth shot he ducked. I mean, he fell to the ground and took off, you know, and went back in. So I had to reload, you know. And by the time I, honest to God, I got him on the sixth shot. And uh, it was like my rifle was almost like an artillery piece. You know, I had his head was in the bottom of the scope, you know. And uh, I dropped him in his tracks on the sixth shot. And he was stupid enough to keep coming out there, <laughs> And so the the uh, Arvin lieutenant was not happy. <laughs> he was not happy. So like the whole, uh, you, you know, the uh, this trope or whatever, the stereotype, like one shot, one kill. Like, is, is that real life? Like, is that the reality of sniper operations? Well, it it, it is up to about 600 yards. You know, um, beyond that, it's, you know, it's... Um, I wouldn't say, I don't know if it's luck, but if you got him on the first shot, um, especially back then, you know, because we didn't have anything. They just taught us that if you happen to see a flag, you know, out there or, mm -hmm. you know, well, if it's partially up, it's about 15 miles an hour. And if it's all the way up, it's 30 to 35 miles an hour. Well, you rarely had a flag, so you'd have to watch trees and stuff like that. And then the, the heat would make the bullet take off also, you know, you had to, you know, kind of learn that, you know, but um, it, it's one shot, one kill if you're close, you know, if you're, I would say within 600 yards, but you get out beyond that, it's uh, not common, you know. I, I just point out that the, uh, the current record holder, longest sniper shot is a Canadian in Mosul, Iraq. And it's like crazy. It's like over two miles, like crazy shot with a 50 caliber rifle with all of our today's modern technology. And one of my sources told me that was about the 150th shot from that sniper position, from that sniper hide that had been fired. I would believe that, you know, because yeah. I, I hear some things and see some things and, and two miles, it would be hard to even see the target. Right, you know, right. I mean, I guess you have better things. All we had was 750 binoculars, you know, and and uh, through the scope, 
all you had, in my case, nine power at the best, you know. But uh, yeah, I hear some of those things, and I would believe that because it's uh, it's it's an art, not a science. You have a you have a lot of data, you know, like like at that 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 shot that you made, you were gathering data with each shot and increasing yeah. your accuracy. Yeah, yeah, because I had the the left and right down, you know, it was the distance that you had to get, you know, like you know you can aim right at him, but you got to get the distance right, you know. And had he not keep coming out, I would have never got him. I don't so know what like, he's digging, but it must have been important. One of the other interesting, uh, you know, missions, actually, you're out there for a while, what it seemed like was a rock pile, I think it was called when you're up on top of a mountain. Yeah, yeah, that was, we were the rock pile is a famous kind of place there. The Japanese were the last ones on it. Um, when we went, up, I went up with force reconnaissance and nobody climbed it, you know, it mm -hmm. was, it was craggy granite peak just sticking out of the jungle uh, just just slightly south of the dmz on highway nine running from dong Hao to kaston and and it was but it was a major observation post you know because it was and so the top of it was all just just sharp granite you know and so uh i went up with five recon guys and me and my partner and uh uh Zulu in the book, and uh, and they just had to hover the helicopter there, and we had to jump onto this thing. And um, the only thing up there at the time was us and some rock apes. You know, they were about four feet high. You know, and we apparently unseated them. You know, because there was a sister peak that was about fifty meters away that. You know, there was kind of not a trail, but there was a rock formation that went over to it. And we would see them over there in the daytime, you know, these little rock apes. And, uh, but we stayed up there for three weeks uh, and recon was calling in airstrikes and stuff. And we got a few shots, but we were so high up that it was eight, 900 meter shot, you know, down to where these, you know, where the gooks were. But, uh, but it was it, it was really interesting up there uh, because you had to just sleep in a part of the rock. You just had to find a place. It wouldn't even tear your clothes. It was just it was an interesting place. And uh, and we just sat up there. You couldn't go more than twenty feet in either direction, you know. And uh, and so one night, one of the recon guys was screaming and. And a rock ape had started beating on him. You know, he wasn't biting him or anything. He just he just came over there and started slapping the crap out of him. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, but it was interesting because none of us shot any. We didn't really have a desire to shoot him. You know, but, but that's all that was up there. And then they shoot. They shot. I don't know if they still use recoil. Do they still use recoilless rifles? Oh, they're you definitely know. out there. Oh yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, the gooks used to shoot those at us and uh so when they would shoot them we would kind of climb down over the other side of the rock pile and they never hit the top of the rock pile but they got close enough that you heard the whoosh go by you know? and so they'd hit below us and then they'd try and hit us and they always went over us but uh, and so uh it was 
it was interesting. And I, I think the, the other thing that comes out in your book too, um, that, that we, I have to mention is that as these missions went on, um, some of the guys, I think Zulu was one of them, maybe Crude was another, like you can see that the longer you guys are in country doing these operations, like some of their minds started to come apart. Like, like there was a, there was a, a psychological um, effect on them a, as time drew on throughout the war. Oh, there was uh, like mine, mine. I, now I know this in hindsight, I didn't know at the time. Mine uh, just became this zone that I was in that I liked and I, it was a camaraderie, you know, and mm -hmm. all that. And, um, but I did have one guy, uh, he passed away uh, two years ago with uh, cancer, but um, he, uh, Wiener in the book, okay. And um, he, he had an unfortunate experience. He was out uh, with the grunts and uh, another of our two, we had a team, you know, two-man team with one set of grunts, two-man team with another set of grunts. They were in the DMZ on different ridges, and it was the monsoon. So, you know, it's cloudy, it's, you know, everything. And it's difficult at 600 yards, to, even with 750 binoculars, to tell whether that's an American or, a, you know, Vietnamese. And so his lieutenant called in. They saw movement. It was about 600 yards. And they had movement across the way and on another thing. So they called COC, Combat Operations Center, for a check, you know. And with well, a lieutenant with the other group reported that he was somewhere else. So he, they got the green light. So they sent the false report. Yeah. And out of, you know, 100 grunts or 50 grunts or whatever it was, the guy that, that Gary happened to, shoot uh, and kill was one of our snipers. There were two of them out of that group and, and he, he got a headshot and, and killed him. And, uh, and after that, he really, uh, and he was cleared of any, you know, problems. Wrong he doing, was just right. doing what he was told, you know. He, and, uh, but it really worked on him. And he, uh, after that, it kind of, snowballed and he uh, he got um, he got into I told you we used to lay grenades on you know booby traps and run and stuff well he got into what he called blowing mines let's go blow some grunt mines you know and stuff and so one time he uh, after that he uh, uh, I actually think honest to gosh I think my book would make a good mash series because of the characters and stuff but Gary, after that one time, we're waiting on our five-man teams waiting on. Uh, we were around the grunts at a air, you know, air thing, and we're waiting on a chopper to take us out. And and he saw a supply guy that had some yellow paint, you know, how they stencil stuff. And so he takes that paint and sprays his boots yellow, his jungle boots, just sprayed them yellow, and and then sat down. We're waiting, and this lieutenant comes walking by. Marine, why are your boots yellow? Gary stood up and said, sir, my boots aren't yellow. <laughs> and, and argued with him. 
and the grunt lieutenant finally walked away, you know. And one time Gary lit, he took lighter fluid and just soaked the front toes of his boots and lit them when he saw an officer coming and went through the same dialogue, you know, that my boots aren't on fire. You know? And uh, and then he he was very, 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 very quick tempered. And, you know, somebody took his seat at a, I don't know, meeting. We were, you know, I don't know, it, back at one of the bases and uh, he just leveled the guy. <laughs> I mean, just stand up and just leveled it. And so he, he and I, uh, spent a lot of time together in the last 20 years, you know, and, uh, and he, he passed away two years ago, but he had been married 48 years, you know, uh, wow. and, and he had a lot of problems through there that she saw him through, you know, and, uh, uh, but a wonderful lady that he was married to. And, uh, and the funny thing with that, when my book came out, I was, uh, in Spokane doing the book signing, you know, and that's where he carries from. And so he said, well, stay at my house. So I did. And he says, well, I'll take you down to the newspaper because they were, they were going to interview me, you know. And so on the way down and stuff, he, he tells me he was a teacher, high school teacher for 29 years. And uh, no one knew he was a veteran. Wow. It had a ponytail no one he had never told anybody and so we're riding down there and he wow. says he says uh he told me that and i said well, gary you know this story's more about you than me you lived here you know and you were there 18 months you know no no i don't want anybody no and I, I finally said when we got ready to walk in the studio i said well gary today's your coming out party <laughs> <laughs> and so so they, it worked out in the end great because he, the story was more about him than me. It was about the book, but it featured him. And then everybody knew, you know, at, at work, but his wife said that it was the last part of his life there after all that was the best because he, he came to grips with it all. You know, he had in yeah, his head yeah. that he was in trouble for, you know, for shooting this guy and stuff. And, and I was able to sit down with him and go, you never got in trouble for that, you know? So I'm sure it's guilt and, you know, whatnot. Yeah. The shame, shame and that, that he held the, onto that for 29 years and wouldn't talk about, wouldn't talk, yeah. wouldn't even say he was a Marine. No, yeah. nobody, nobody knew, you know, he, uh, and he was a real Marine. You go to his house and he had a Marine room, you know, and everything. And, but after, uh, after that, we were able, uh, during the Iraq war, especially in Afghanistan, the current Marine snipers would have us out to, uh, at that time, the, the best sniper school was out in, in my opinion, it was out in uh, Hawaii. And so they would host us and we would go out for graduation and they just treated us like, you know, royalty. And, and so Gary got to do that and it, it really, really helped him, you know. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, yeah. He, because there was just a lot of incidents through the years that his wife endured that were hard. You know, they, yeah, yeah, of course. It, yeah, unbelievable. Um, it, there were, you know, things got kind of like, uh, you know, apocalypse now at times, though, there's that one dude on your on the, 
on the team who had like an ear collection uh, that you write about in the book. Yeah, he, he was actually the MBA guy. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ, really? <laughs> yeah, he was. And uh, he was, you know, kind of, well, he he wore a piece of comm wire, you know, around his neck and and he had this collection of ears and he'd dry them like potato chips and, God damn, and he'd wear man. them. And, uh, and that was at least, you know, not so much now, but through the years, you know, people say, well, you know, what, what movie best depicts, you know, Vietnam? Well, there isn't one because everybody's experience was a little different. I'm sure it's like your war, you know. But for me personally, it was Apocalypse Now up until the end. You know, the end got weird, you know, Brando and all that stuff. But, but uh, you know, where the, the choppers came in, you know, with music and that, you know, blaring music, they did that, you know. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, you know, we would, as snipers, we would literally just, when we worked up north at Dong Ha, our, our platoon was still 60, 70 miles south of Fuba you know and so when we wanted to get mail or anything we had to go back there so when we were working with recon they were up north and so hutch and i my zulu in the book would have to fly down for like tonight and fly back tomorrow morning to be with recon and we would literally marine pilots wouldn't help us out because they were protocol but the air force pilots they loved us and so these c-130s would come in multiple times a day from Da Nang and they would fly all the way to Dong Ha and back, you know, ferrying uh, ammunition and whatnot, you know, supplies. And we, this is, it was bizarre, you know, because Hutch and I would just go out, they'd see our sniper rifles, you know, and they liked to talk to us and stuff. And so we'd say, hey, would you drop us at Fuba? And they'd go, oh yeah, you know. <laughs> And they'd stop that big four-engine plane. We'd run out, go over our base. They'd go, be back here at 0600. <laughs> We'd be back out there. They'd stop, pick us up, take us up to Dong Ha, you know. And if it had it went down, nobody knew where the heck we were, you know. It was, uh, it it was, was, it was bizarre. Speaking of which, I want to ask you also about that incident, a really incident, interesting incident that happened where, you guys had smoked up some NVA, some legit bad guys, but there was a civilian wounded in the process, and like yeah. some real heat came down on you. Um, oh, yeah. when, when you were you were really legitimately trying to do the right thing there. Yeah, it. it uh, we had they had a colonel or above over there, as as I understood it, what could declare any area a free fire zone, meaning the grunts would go through and literally move everybody and they take them down to the you know the uh kind of the beach area and the cbs would build them a new village and they were told they can't go back. oh it's a strategic hamletting and that would be where there's massive infiltration just problems and weed traps and everything and so and so what uh happened on this they the bad guys would learn from the Arbans where the edge of that free fire zone was. It was on a map, you know, there wasn't any signs or anything. And what was happening, we were effective out in this valley. We were knocking off, you know, a lot of people. And so um, they uh, they would come up with these berry pickers, usually women, 
and they would, you know, the rice paddy daddy hats, and they would be right at the edge of the free fire zone, and they would lob mortars at us, you know. So I thought, you know, we need to end that crap, you know. So we snuck in at night in these berry patches and were sitting right at the edge of the free fire zone, but they weren't in it. And there were the bad guys, you know, mixed in them. We could, we know them, we could see them. And so we shot them, you know, we took them out. I mean, we were 50 meters, you know, I mean, it was close. And a young, probably 16 year old or something, took a graze, you know, in the leg, you know, uh, from the shooting. And uh, so, you know, we went down and, uh, and they, you know, the ones that were there were upset, you know, and everything. And, and so uh, I called a medevac for her. Um, and I knew if I called and it wasn't a Marine, I'd wait three hours, you know. So I called and said, we took a casualty. Well, well, here they came, you know. <laughs> I mean, two gunships are buzzing the place, you know. And, <laughs> and this, uh, this medevac comes in, and when he saw who we were taking out, he was talking to me on the radio, and I finally just had to squelch him, you know, <laughs> He was just pissed. Yeah, like click, we're done here. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, I did. I turned my back and walked away, and uh, it was not thirty minutes. I, I get a call on the radio that says the Colonel's choppers coming to pick you up. Just me, <laughs> not anybody else. And uh, and so uh, you know, I, I had two kind of new guys out with me that time. They're freaking out and everything, you know. So I. I just said, look, I'm, I'll take the heat, you know, I mean, I'm, I made mm -hmm. this decision, nobody else, you know, and um, so the colonel's chopper did come and get me, fly me back, and see, we had a lieutenant in charge of our snipers, like between us and the colonel, <laughs> but this guy was totally admin, you know, he never went to the bush, he wasn't a sniper, he was just in charge, and so he and I had gotten into it he and he was a turned out he was a good guy but when he came to the platoon he thought we needed discipline you know and so he ordered us to shave you know and uh so we just went to the bush you know and stayed away from him for six weeks and when he saw me the next time he ordered me i'm giving you a direct order well i had memorized a marine corps order i forget it now but it said sergeant uh start about your mustache five, yeah can have a mustache you know because i shaved but i left my mustache and uh he said uh and he came back with one that you have to obey your commander or something so he finally said to me um i requested mass which in the naval service anyway i wanted to see the one above him well the one above him is the colonel well the colonel had me buying his wife stuff when I went on R and R. Says okay, oh six thirty tomorrow we have a meeting with the mustache shave. I am going to court martial, you know. So I smoked that for a while and and shaved, you know. And so I go into the request mask and. Uh, and the colonel, honest to God, said to him, 
why are you effing with this guy? And he said to the lieutenant, <laughs> the lieutenant says, well, I'm just trying to have some, he said, you don't know what these guys do. Leave them alone. He goes, grow your mustache. And so I've had it ever since. You know, I, I when I when I went to work with Frito Lay uh, after Nam, about ten years after Nam, I went to work for Frito Lay and was a manager and stuff. And uh, my boss, when I moved to headquarters in Dallas, told me I had to shave my mustache because they wanted. And I said, so I told him that story and said, it ain't happening. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so he let me alone and. Uh, but what happened is, so so that lieutenant and I, you know, I had kind of beat him with the colonel there. Well, I get back, and who do I have to see but him? And he sits down, and I thought, I'm toast. <laughs> and so uh, he sits down with me and said, okay, the, this is where we're at. You know, they came back and said, you shot him off water buffalo. You did this. And uh, honest to God, I the the, tr the just blatant truth has never failed. I, I mean, just, and I looked at him and said, "Sir, there were no water before." And and uh, he looked at me and said, "I'm going to talk to the colonel and I'll let you know." And he came back to me about an hour later and said, "The chopper will take you back out. You're good." <laughs> and yeah, no, that that I was cool that, that he that, that was I, cool that I he. I uh, think I was gonna get. That, that was cool that he backed you up in the end. Yeah, he did. You know, he was a Mustang. You know, he had come up through the ranks. He was a lieutenant, but he'd been in. The, you know, he'd been a gunny and so. And uh, and I I got to, I got to know him after that. I think he was just frustrated that he was an admin, yeah. you know, role and 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 then I think he grew grew to respect what we were doing as opposed to. With us, you know. Speaking of which, Ed, there's a, a point in your book where you take a guy out, uh, and, and uh, a guy who's not necessarily a sniper because he wants to get a, a, a kill in. Oh and yeah. The the way your book is, is written, like I mean, people really got to read your 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 memoir, Dead Center, because it's written. You have a very sarcastic sense of humor. And I'm just looking at the book. I want to read a few passages. What a place Vietnam was. It was sick enough to go around and shoot people. But to want to kill so you could beg the dudes on the Marine rifle, so you could brag to the dudes on the Marine rifle team, well, let's lock and load, Sarge. And then he shoots the guy, and I want to hear the story from you. He, he, he shoots the guy, but wounds him. And you wrote in the book, this really jumped out at me. You say, our eyes met. I, couldn't I could tell he didn't like me any more than I liked him. Fuck, it's just a game, man. Nothing personal. <laughs> well, well what, uh, what happened there well we were we were we kind of owned this valley you know i mean we knew every nook and cranny we'd been there for months you know and uh we knew the infiltration routes you know we knew everything and so when this this guy was a career marine nice guy he was the hawaiian guy we called him pineapple and, and uh and he was our armorer, you know, he took care of our weapons. That was his specialty. And he was a member of the Marine Rifle Team. And uh, so we just knew him as a good guy, you know, back at the rear that took care of our stuff. And, and you know, we 
we had shots every time we went out, anytime we wanted to. And so he came, he did. He came to me and said, I'm going home at the end of the month, you know, and I I I'm on a Marine rifle team. I don't want to say I was with fourth Marine snipers and didn't shoot anybody. He says, Could you take me on a patrol? Yeah, you know. So we took him out to a favorite spot of ours where we knew, you know, there was infiltration and and uh, we would we tried to be somewhere that no one would dream you'd be, you know. And so we sat in this grass, it was about four feet high and camouflaged ourselves. And we did it at night. So morning comes and normally our shots there were about three to 400 meters. And, uh, you know, they're kind of chip shots. And so um, there was a little knoll in front of us, probably a hundred feet, it wasn't far, you know, that it's grassy and stuff. And so we're sitting there that morning, hadn't seen anything. It was probably nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. And up pops an NBA soldier on this knoll, literally 7,500 feet from us, looking all around. Obviously didn't know we were there. And uh, so the sergeant sitting next to me, the, you know, pineapple, he was a staff sergeant. I just hit his leg and kind of put my hand out and said, there he is, you know. And uh, so he got up, you know, got his rifle and everything, and he cranks off around, but he, is, he was shaking, you know, it's probably like they say deer fever or something, you know, and uh, so the guy goes down, but he starts yelling, you know, in Vietnamese, well, I can't have, you know, I had six guys this time because I had him, but uh, I can't have 20 guys running up over that hill, you know, so I just jumped up, grabbed my M14 and nothing else, I had my, my stuff off, you know, and I ran to the guy, you know, and, uh, and two of my guys just took off on either side, you know, to give me cover. And uh, I got down to the guy, he, and he was younger than me, you know, I might have been 20 then, I don't know. But, uh, and he had his AK laying right next to him, and he was bleeding at the leg. He took it around in the thigh. And uh, our, eyes, our eyes did meet, and, and I knew he was younger than me. He was dressed in the NBA stuff and and uh, nobody ever came up over the thing but I know he wasn't alone because he was yelling you know for help and um, any rate I got right to his feet and I have the drop on him with my 14 and I think I had been there too long because I just thought eh, you know maybe give him a hush you know and uh, so I I stepped around, I was going to kick his 14 or his AK away from him, you know. And so when I reached down, he grabbed that sucker and pulled it right, pulled the trigger right in my stomach. And, uh, and it misfired. I, I still have the bullet. Our lieutenant took the friggin' AK, you know, but um, I still had the bullet with the broken primer in it. I used to wear it around my neck, but, but, uh, well, then I took care of him, you know, I thought, you know. And, and did you, it. like, I, I mean, it, it was almost like you had this, like, supernatural type of luck. Like, there's that one point where you stumbled and you fell, your foot fell inside a booby trap, and it was a howitzer round, and it didn't go off. There's the incident that you just described. Right. There were booby traps. There were guys to your left and right who got killed. And somehow, for two years in Nam, like, you came through it, like, 
was there any point that you started started to feel like you know either i'm a, a one in a million or like i'm the next to buy it like what's going through your head uh i i never thought i would get killed uh i don't know i mean that's probably a mental thing you know maybe a survival thing i don't know but i just never thought i would and and uh and i at the time i was uh i was raised no religion you know, right. I mean, none, <laughs> what, what, and and Tomo had atheist on his dog tag, so you know how he <laughs> paid for that in boot camp. You know, I mean, he paid for that. You know, and uh, I don't know if either one of us were. He ended up being a Catholic, and I ended up finding Christ. But but uh, but we were both pretty amoral, you know, at the time, and and uh, so my thought was always, I'm lucky. I'm just lucky. I I never thought of it from a religious, you, you know what I mean, like a right, right, anything like that. It it uh, it means something to me now more, you mm -hmm. know, that uh, that I found Christ. But uh, at the time, I I just said, "Damn, I'm lucky." Yeah, fuck it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it felt. That is, that's exactly. Because I just had this thing, if I'm going to go, I want to go in a blaze of glory. I, you know, I want to go fighting. I don't want to step on a booby trap. You know? uh, and you have no control over that, but that's what I hoped. You know? And I, I, I think it was also interesting that, you know, you really do a good job of describing being a young man in combat and also bouncing between going on R&R, &R, going to Hong Kong, going to Thailand, going back home. And kind of juxtaposing those experiences, um, especially when you went home and it was like, you're like, I have nothing to relate to here. And by the end of the war, I think you wrote in the book, like going home was more terrifying than anything I had faced during Vietnam. Yeah, going home uh, the second time, you know, I went home uh, between my years, you know, and I, you know, I remember stepping off the plane in Cleveland airport and, uh, and my mom was wonderful because she supplied our platoon with socks. You know, I mean, she she was yeah, and she, yeah, she put up with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she sent us booze and baby bottles so that the <laughs> post office couldn't figure it out. You know, and uh, uh, and uh, then she, um, but she she was a great gossip. You know, I mean, she just she would help anybody, but just had story after story. You know. And I remember getting off the plane in Cleveland, getting in the car, and she starts telling me all this gossip and stuff. And I, you know, all I could think of put me back on the plane, man. I, I can't cope. No, it, it's just, it was a different world, you know. It right. Was, it was, you know, it was, uh, and I remember, you know, when I, uh, when I left growing up, my, my dad worked hard. He was he was in trucking, you know, and he drove and then he got one and two and all that. So I never saw him, you know, uh, much. But um, and so he was a good provider and everything. But uh, like not around the house. He just he would yeah. hire somebody. He would, which is fine. But but I remember one of the incidents. I came home and went to get a shower. And the same streak of hot water that was there when I left, <laughs> you know, one streak had never been repaired, you know, and stuff. And I remember 
it just set me off so much. I took off and went to a motel and rented a room to take a shower, you know, just things like that, you know. And uh, when I told my mom I wasn't staying, I was going back, you know, for another tour. And uh, she said, I really think you should see someone. <laughs> she wanted me to go see Shrink or somebody, you know. And, uh, but it's, and I'm sure you guys experienced what I, from what I see, it's um, like you're in this world with a totally new, new different set of rules, mm-hmm. you know, over in wherever you are, you know, and you come home and you realize that nobody gives a shit, you know. Right. I mean, right. there's a few people that genuinely do, but they're far and few between. There's a lot of lip service, you know, and that to me didn't. You know, I didn't get too hung up in the 60s coming back because I never had, I personally never had anybody spit on me or any of that. And I, talking to vets through the years, I think that happened more in cities than it did smaller towns where I was from. And so, but I had a lady come up uh, to me uh, because my dad, when I came home the second time, my dad picked me up at the airport and and we used to be really involved in go-kart racing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so he had to build a track and, you know, he was president of the association. So the family was really into it. And I got, I never got really back into it from after Vietnam. It was different then. And, and so, uh, but I remember coming home and it was a Sunday and he picked me up and took me straight to the racetrack. And then he went, my mom was running the concession stand. My dad was running the races and I was left sitting there you know and uh it just didn't connect you know I mean it right. was just like you know and your, your I, dad had a real hard time relating to you I felt like yeah. reading your book yeah he did and I and me him you know uh, mm-hmm. he was now that I'm older and can reflect and stuff you know he was a product uh, he, he had to quit school and go to work at 14 because his dad died on a railroad accident and so to him, the world was money, you know, like security was money. So he, he, he grew up in the depression. Yes, he did. And, uh, and so, you know, I can't relate to that. I mean, I can now more, but you know, as a kid, you can't, you just know your dad's not there, you know? And, uh, and so, um, but I remember I was sitting there and this woman who I really didn't know, uh, came over to me and her husband was the big wig of the carding association stuff from out of town. And she sits down and says, Oh, I understand you just got home from Vietnam. And I said, yeah, I did. She says, well, aren't you glad to be home from that awful place and all those awful people you were around? I said, no, ma'am, I would love to go back there right now and be with them rather than you, you know? And, uh, it just, you know, you're just a different world. And, uh, and I think that the, one of, one of the things I think I've learned over the years is, and I did, I wrote a book about, oh, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, um, called um, Firefights of the Mind. Mm-hmm. And it's about my, P, you know, PTA experience coming home and, and since then, you know, and how it sticks with you and, and uh, but I think one of the things that gets people is the uh, injustice of 
okay, I went and did these things, you know, uh, for my country. And then you see the deceit and everything that goes on in war from Washington and Hanoi and whatnot, you know. That is what sets me off today. You know, it's I've never had a nightmare about Vietnam, but I I I my wife and I finally I finally was able to articulate about 15 years ago what happens in my head and it, I call it the bees, you know, like when something sets me off, it's like these bees came out of the hive in my head and I have to get them back in, you know. And so my wife bought little bumblebees. They sit them all around the house. And so when I, when I, when I slip, she just points to the bumblebee. You know? And it actually works, you know. It's, uh, uh, but uh, so, you know, mine has never been one of regretting what I did. I'll give you a, a really good example of with what's going on in the country today with the riots and the, wanting to tear down the statues and all that stuff. I have a friend around here who is was a Navy pilot in, in Vietnam. And I met him a few years ago at a, a high school used to have a Vietnam symposium down here. And that's where I met him. And now he moved up here near me. And he's a pilot still. And, and, uh, but he's the proverbial fighter pilot. He's short, he's all attitude, wonderful guy, but he, he's, he's picture perfect. And, and he, um, his wife and daughter got a hold of me just not long ago, you know, probably six weeks ago and said, can you help? And, and so, and I had no idea because he has the same humor we do, you know, the dark humor. Because he flew three three different uh, missions, or you know, six months stints over there, so he did close air support, Hanoi, you know, everything, and um, and so he had gotten so upset that his wife left, you know, and uh, so I went down, and spent about four hours with him one night, three or four hours. And uh, what it boiled down to, what, what set him off was when all the Minneapolis riots, the Portland bullshit, you know. And what set him off was he said to me, he says, you remember the end of the war? He says, I was flying close air support for the Arvins when the North Vietnamese stormed across the border. You know, it's like 73 or 4 or something. Kind of you know. And he said, normally from my vantage point when I'm flying, you can't see people, you know, because he said, I'm starting in at 5,000 feet. And, you know, he said the North Vietnamese were so, there was so many of them, they looked like ants on the ground. And he said, and I was dropping, I think they call them daisy cutters, where they go down and blow up. They, mm -hmm. The bomb goes out, splits into 100 bombs or something, and then three feet oh, above the ground. Cl cluster munitions. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and he said, I don't know how many I killed, but I, I'm sure I killed hundreds, if not thousands. And he said, and I'm okay with that because I, I did that with a clear conscience for my country because there was a war going on. But now I look at these punks who are destroying my country for my grandkids and I see people doing nothing about it. And now I doubt myself. 
And that was insightful to me because uh, I didn't expect it coming from him. You know, I mean, he he's not a guy, if you, I mean, if you met him, you know, he's got the military dark humor and, you know, he's been there, done that and all that. But, but uh, it deeply bothered him what he did. And he said, it's never bothered me once in my life, but I see how our kids have just been dumbed down, you know, that they don't know history, you know, and they don't. And so I think part of the problem with uh, you guys coming off Iraq is, is you come home and it's the injustice of, I just did this and I saw all my friends die. And you guys are playing games and watching, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and every every year it gets a little bit harder to explain why we're in Afghanistan or why we're yes. in the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. In in Vietnam, I wouldn't I mean it, it's not double digits or anything, but I know many times we would just lose a hundred Marines fighting for a hill and then leave yeah. the hill. You know, and and at 19, you're still sitting there, even at 19, you're sitting there going what the hell is going on, you know, and uh, um, so, you know, I, I have been a student of the war since I left, you know, I, I had my mother send me books when I was there, and she sent me right, Ho, Chi right. on Re- Ho Chi Minh on Revolution, Mao on Guerrilla Warfare, I wanted to understand my am- enemy, you know, and so I spent a lot of, a lot of time, and I still have all those books, and now I probably have 500 Vietnam books, and and I've read it from protesters' point of views, you know, everything else. Um, and I honestly think it it could have been a just war because Vietnam is now communist and Cambodia is communist, and Laos is communist. But we didn't fight it to win, you know, and and uh, we didn't lose battles over there. You know, we lost to Paris, you know, and stuff. And, uh, and that's the injustice that, that probably the thing that sets me off most more than anything is injustice. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the injustice is that we threw away 50,000, you know, plus American lives in Vietnam. And we all have to ask ourselves, you know, what, what did they die for? Yeah. Yeah, you do. And, and the problem that I've found is that old people um, get us into war, but young people fight it. Right. And one of the right. challenges with that, and I know from reading your book, I know you know this, uh, one of the challenges with that is, is for many, it was me, probably you, it's a, um, it's a, the adventure of a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, it yeah. is. You hate to say that, but it is. And, and so... That's that's kind of a conundrum there, you know. With yeah, yeah, um, no, it, it it absolutely is. Um, that, you know, we go into these things as as young guys, and it, it is an adventure, and it's it is very exciting. And, and war, as you experienced as well, Ed, it's intoxicating. It's an it's addicting. It it's a, it's a lifestyle. Yep. Um, and then coming home from all of it, it is uh, can be quite difficult and painful. You know. Oh, it is. I you know my wife and I laugh now, but. But uh, the, we, I couldn't stand crowds, you know, I still don't like them, but I can't, I couldn't stand them when I came home. And so when we decided to get married, uh, it was, well, we got to invite this person and this person and pretty soon, you know, 
we were we went down to Winchester, Virginia, and got married by a justice of the peace, you know. And on the way home, we stopped to get some things for the apartment. And she turned to me and had two towels. And she said, do you think we should buy thick or thin? And I said, yeah. I'll see you in the I'll see you in the car. <laughs> <laughs> that was that I couldn't get my mind around that, you know. <laughs> I, I I could not get my mind around that. You know, it, it was uh, it was just and and the, but you're right. It's intoxicating. And in uh, my dad would get frustrated with me. I raced the really fast go karts and stuff, and was very competitive and very good. When you know in high school before I went in the Marines. Well, I come home from Vietnam and thought I still wanted, I I actually thought I wanted to try and get into racing cars and stuff. And, uh, and I loved the speed, but I could be competing at 20th place or first place. It mattered not to me, you know, I didn't care. And uh, it would frustrate my dad, you know, because he's, well, you got to win. And I'd go, it's all about the adrenaline, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. wheel to wheel. You know, that was, that was the thing, you know, I, I went out and skydived, you know, thought maybe that was it. And I learned to fly a plane and, and, uh, you know, all those things, rock climbing, uh, and then you finally realize that you're chasing the adrenaline. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was fortunate enough, I don't have a college degree, I dropped out, I, I unfortunately, I wasn't going to Kent State campus, but I was going to a Kent State branch nearby when the, when the shootings happened. Oh, yeah. I did not want to go to college, my wife wanted me to go to college, you know, so I got about two years in, but, but when that happened, uh, it was always liberal, but, but when that happened, I remember a sociology class and this woman was, would just turn it in every, every day she would turn it into, I was working full-time going to school full-time and, uh, she would turn it into a big, bad government problem, you know? And everybody would agree, you know, on this and that. And her and I had a, to do one day, and I walked out and swore I'd never go back. And I didn't. And uh, But I made it to vice president of Compact Computer without a college degree. <laughs> so, Ed, I did want to ask you about that, because you were like the, the literal atheist in the foxhole um, in Vietnam. And, and you talk about how, you know, you got married after the war, and your wife brought you to Jesus. Uh, and I'm not really a religious person at all, but I'm very interested to hear your experience and, and how you came and like you accepted Jesus into your life. Like this became an important thing for you. Well, uh, when we were getting married, uh, my wife was going with, at the time we met, uh, she was going with a guy that's now an anesthesiologist and stuff. And so she came from a very poor background stuff, but she always wanted to be better. And uh, and so she was probably thinking she was gonna marry him. At any rate, um, we went out and I convinced her he'd make more money and I'd have more fun, you know? And uh, so uh, I, I convinced her to get married. We got married about nine months after we started dating. And I didn't intend on getting married. I, I honestly didn't. Uh, I when I came back, you know, they didn't have contractors like they do now. Mm -hmm. so you can go, you know, get your adrenaline. But I had designs on becoming a mercenary, you know, and at the time. That's, that's, 
And I had worked one time with a British Marine captain over in Nam, and he um, told me a bar to go to in Brussels, Belgium, where they recruited for the Belgian. And so that was my plan to party the summer and then head off to Belgium, you know, Brussels. I don't know if I would have ever done it, but I met my wife anyway. We, something told me if I was ever going to really do anything good, I needed to marry her. So I convinced her, but she had two conditions. One was you have to work. I didn't have any intention of going to work. I honest to God didn't. <laughs> and number two, you have to go to church sometime, you know. And so uh, I, you know, I went to work and, and kind of put my adrenaline into that. You know, I went to Frito Lay and was promoted five times in six years, you know, and stuff, and, and and was blessed with a company that recognized they wanted results, you know, and so I knew how to get results. Military people do, you know, and so uh, and then um, as my son was born, he was our first. That was about four or five years after we got married. I was very uncomfortable with myself. You know, I uh, I was drinking. I, I had a serious drinking problem. And I don't blame that on Vietnam because I started when I was 14, you know, when I was a kid, you know. And uh, it probably Vietnam might have exacerbated it. You know, <laughs> right, right. You know, because I would I had a one of them basket chairs in my basement and I would sit down there and just drink and trip out about Vietnam, you know, and um, and so when I when I drank, I, I was not a violent drunk or anything. I just didn't talk. I just kind of went into my shell and and wanted to relive it, you know. And uh, so um, I I was uncomfortable. So I I always from Vietnam made me a reader, and so I just. I read a book a week, probably, I don't know how many years, you know, and uh, so I read this book called, uh, I never once considered religion, you know, I started reading Lao Tzu, and I started reading Tao Te Ching, you know, I started reading all these things, trying, trying to, to find something, but I, I never considered religion, and uh, so I, um, I ended up uh, picking this book up, for, for adventure reasons, Thor Heyerdahl, it's called, oh, yeah. well, his first book, which was published after he became famous, you know, for Contiki and Ara expeditions, his first book was Fatuhiva, which is an island in the South Pacific. And when he was a getting out of college, him and his wife, they wanted to live the way Adam and Eve did. So they found an island called Fatuhiva happened to be Fatu Viva. And they went there with a machete and an iron pot. And they committed, he was a biologist, so he got a university to pay their passage. So he spent a year there and without belaboring that, uh, he was raised by an atheist mother and a Roman Catholic father. And, and he described the balance of nature he found there and, you know, the lemmings and, you know, all this stuff. And he said something that made me realize God was real for the first time. And I wasn't seeking that. He said, I don't know about organized religion, but I know there's a God when I look at the balance of nature and how the cycles work. And, you know, he went through that detail. And my light bulb went off, you know, I'm like, 
dang, I think there is, you know. And I remember my brother worked for my dad, you know, and, and uh, he had a trucking company. And so I remember walking in there and telling my brother, I know the truth. <laughs> and he goes, you're drinking again. <laughs> and, and I said, no, I haven't started drinking, but the truth is there is a God, you know, and, uh, and so from that, I, uh, I was on a business trip with my wife's, one of my wife's best friends, her husband went with me on a business trip about four hours away. And on the way back, I'm, I'm telling him about my frustration with myself, you know, that I'm not who I should be and I'm not living my life, you know, because I was kind of haunted by, I mean, I think I was a good father, but, and, uh, and he knew me during my drinking days. So, you know, it took a lot of courage for him. And that night he, uh, like, it was like near, it was midnight or later. We're, we lived in Akron, Ohio. We're driving back in, and he says, um, he bore his testimony to me of Christ. And I, my light bulb went off. I, it was like, boom. And, uh, and I got involved, and, and I, uh, for, for the next 10 years, I read nothing but the Bible. And, uh, related books i didn't read a business book i didn't read anything because i felt like i was behind the power curve you know and uh so since then i've served as a lay minister twice and uh, and so it was a dramatic change you know uh, that uh just happened you know i mean i i wasn't seeking it and so once it did happen i i uh, all those experiences in nam kind of mean a lot to me now. right right yeah, you you feel like JC and his boys were like looking after you, uh, you know, when your foot went into the booby trap and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I do now, <laughs> mm. you know, I do now. Uh, I because when you look at the odds of that happening, because I had I'd have to look at my list, but it was like a dozen, maybe 13, 14 times. Yeah, that yeah. I, uh, you know, I actually, walked, I actually walked across the punji pit one time and it fell slow. Like the guy digging it must not have dug it straight, the edge straight down. And it had a little bow in it. And so it, it hesitated just a second before it went down. And I was able to jump forward on with my elbows and catch myself. So my feet went down where the stakes were. But, and so uh, my friend, the Greek, who's in the book, uh, mm -hmm. He's the one who lost the leg over there, and uh, he was he was a Catholic from Brooklyn, New York, you know, an Italian, and we, that's why we call him Greek because he was Italian. But but uh, we uh, I ended up with him. Uh, he would volunteer to go with me every patrol because he said, if I'm next to you, nothing's going <laughs> to happen to me, you know. And I used to laugh at him and stuff. And he used to say to me, God's saving you for something. And I would laugh and say, yeah, all right. You know, and uh, the first patrol he went on without me after that, he lost his leg. And uh, so he was more convinced after that. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was really incredible. It's like every time that you went on R and R or you went somewhere else and the guys went out on patrol without you, like something bad happened. Yeah, it did. It really did. Um, it was, it was uh, the reason I called my book an odyssey, a two year odyssey, because that's what it was. It was, yeah, it was, uh, it was just bizarre, you know, and, and I don't know if bizarre, I think odyssey is a better world. It was word, you know, it was, uh, it really was the Wild West. It, it, right. it got more organized, and you probably experienced that. The, the more the formal military gets involved, you know, it it, it just uh, it, it it's it's nuts. The things they want you to do in a combat zone, you know. And uh, but uh, um, but it was that, it was an experience. I'm uh, I, if it's okay with you, I'm going to ask you to stay just a, like uh, another 10 minutes. I just have a couple uh, questions to ask you for a yeah. bonus segment, if that's cool. Um, that's cool. I really appreciate you um, taking a few hours out of your evening to spend with us tonight. And, like this has been like an incredible conversation. I really want to encourage people to go and read uh, your book, Dead Center. And what is the, the title again of your book about um, PTSD and, and, you know, coming home? Uh, it is Firefights of the Mind. That's right. And um, it's available on Amazon. Yeah, they're both available on Amazon. I, I read uh, a Dead Center on Kindle. It was uh, it was great. I mean, it's a brutal read. It's it's not gl uh, glamorized. It's not glorified. It's like Ed kind of telling it how it is, how it was when he was in Vietnam, and it's not pretty at all. But it, it's real, and I appreciate that you wrote it from that perspective because. There's always, um, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years after the war, you can write it kind of like as if you're 30,000 feet above the war, writing it like you're, you're you know, like a, this godlike being with all of this knowledge that you have. But when you were 18, 19, 20 years old down in the battlefield, you didn't know all that. You were just responding to what was in front of right. you. And I right. think you captured that very well in the book. That's what I set out to do. I didn't, I don't like... Uh... I just like to tell it like it is, you know, with yeah. all the warts and everything else that, you know, that's why I told my boot camp story. You know, I, I just, you know, I. Oh, right. Escape, you you know? went AWOL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are uh, way more stories like in this interview, like we barely scratched the surface because Ed and his uh, Ed and his teammates saw a lot of action out there. Um, in Vietnam. So like, we're just barely scratching the surface. So we'll do the bonus segment with Ed. I got, I got just a couple other things to ask. Um, but in the meantime, go check out his books. Um, please like this video, share it. Uh, give, some, give us some comments down below. Let us know what you think of, uh, of the show and how uh, it's developing, how we're doing. Um, there's also going to be a link to our Patreon down in the description if you want to support the channel. And uh, I'll put a link to Ed's books down there also on Amazon. I'll do that right after we wrap up here. So again, Ed, thank you so much. And thank you for, you know, the hundred some odd people who showed up to watch tonight. Well, it, it's my pleasure to do it. And uh, I would say that if anybody has other questions they want to ask me personally, I'm on, I'm on Facebook. Just friend me. Uh, it's Ed Kugler. That's all. Outstanding. Okay, so thank you. And we'll see you again next week. Oh, I should tease out who we're having on next week. Um, so next week, uh, September uh, the 4th, Chuck Woodson. Uh, Chuck served in Special Forces. He was down in Da Nang. 
worked with the Australians. And uh, he's also done a lot of work uh, on Special Forces history. He actually got to interview uh, Aaron Bank a number of times. So we're going to have an interesting view, uh, interview with him next week. So thank you, guys. And uh, we'll see you then. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.